This week's interview contains discussions relating to gun violence in schools, which may be troubling to some listeners. Idaho Public Television is an independent agency overseen by the Idaho State Board of Education. In a COVID-19 press briefing on Tuesday, Paula Kellerer, superintendent of the Nampa School District, said districts in her area are seeing an increase in COVID infections in students and staff. Nampa averages 100 students per week testing positive in the district, and unlike last year, elementary student positive cases have exceeded the number of high school cases. According to Dr. Katherine Turner, deputy state epidemiologist, weekly case counts in children are now increasing more rapidly than case counts in adults. Nearly 1,700 cases were reported last week in children, and there's been an increase in pediatric hospitalizations. Statewide, there are only 21 licensed pediatric ICU beds in Idaho. Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. Today, I'm joined by School Safety and Security Program Manager, Mike Munger, to discuss the recently released report on the May 6th shooting at Rigby Middle School. For any listeners who may not know, the shooting at the Rigby Middle School resulted in two students and one staff member being wounded. A 13-year-old girl, a sixth grade student, was taken into custody after a teacher disarmed her. Uh, Mike, the 11-page report covered lessons learned and improvements that could be made. What is the importance of drafting these kind of reports after an incident of violence at the school? Well, Ruth, that's a great question. And I think that goes to the core of how we look at process improvement when it comes to school safety and security Uh, in Idaho specifically, but also generally. If we have the ability to stop and take a breath and understand what happened, we have the ability then to be able to inform future events hopefully prevent or mitigate future events. That's always the goal uh, and also be able to improve our responses. The, the reality is that school violence generally and but in Idaho specifically is a low frequency, high impact event. So it becomes really important for us to have a structured process for capturing those lessons learned. Otherwise the tendency is that we just allow those to float by and we make our plans and training and all of the elements that go into a strong school safety program based on what we think we know instead of what we've actually found. So this after action review process is a standardized process for emergency management. It's really a helpful process if looking at how do we improve over time when it comes to school safety and security, which I I think everybody is interested in that as a goal. Can you talk to me a little bit about the methodology on how the report was drafted? And I believe you made 29 recommendations. We don't have to go through all of them right now, (laughs) but maybe can you talk to me about the methodology behind uh, the process? Yeah, by all means. I think it's really important when we look at this report to understand kind of the intent that we went into. The, The goal is certainly wrapped up with the criminal investigation, but that wasn't our purpose. Our purpose was to be able to capture those lessons learned that were broadly applicable and replicable throughout the state, because there are always little idiosyncrasies that take place in every kind of emergency response. In some ways, they're helpful and instructive, but in some ways, they're just a nuance of how that incident played out. 
And so what we really tried to do from an ed editorial perspective is to find those things that would be of the most advantage to policymakers at the local school board level or to administrators, and then also to help inform this conversation statewide as we look at what are the best things that we can put our time, effort, and investment towards. And so to, to do that, I always want to throw into the mix that our intent was never to create a cohesive fact picture of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. What we set out to do was to be able to put together those things that would be of the most advantage to uh, the entire school community throughout the state of Idaho. To get that done, it was accomplished primarily through on-site interviews. We wanted to talk with the folks who actually walked through this incident. And that included uh, school staff members, it included emergency responders who were on site at the time, it included district administrators, and then also some agency personnel from state agencies that were also assisting in the response and the recovery effort. And from my opinion, there's no substitute in being able to sit across the table from someone and ask them, what did you see? What did you learn as a result of what you saw? And what recommendations would you individually have as we work to make these systems better? So that was the methodology. It was an informal interview process with the folks who actually walked through this, this tragic incident. What were some of the key takeaways of the Rigby shooting after uh, conducting those interviews? I would say one of the primary key takeaways is the importance of coordination. We are very quick to say that, that the safety of the school is a reflection of the relationships that have been built within that community. And in many ways, that actually was proof positive in this particular incident. It was very helpful to be able to see the outpouring of support from the community perspective. But what I would point to is there was, it was not just an emotional reaction in many ways, in this, in this particular district, there had been a, a long history of community coordination between local law enforcement agencies and local emergency operations personnel, the school generally, mental health providers. And so it was not a surprise when everyone came to the table in the moment of crisis. But what was really reassuring and really helpful, I think, for a lot of the communities in Idaho that have light levels of official resources, but high levels of community engagement, that the community was really willing to step into the gap and help fulfill a lot of the needs that took place there. But that doesn't happen by accident. That happens as a result of an ongoing commitment to building strong community and building strong shared expectations of what do emergencies look like. So I think that was a large takeaway. Um, that took a variety of structural forms. They, there was a long running school resource officer program within the district. And many people think of school resource officers as being just a law enforcement officer who has the ability to decisively end a confrontation. But when we're looking at the effectiveness of models for school resource officers, it's about building positive relationships between the school, students, local law enforcement, and the greater school community. And even though in this circumstance, the SRO's presence wasn't a decisive factor, those relationships really showed through. And so having the ability to even know who to call in an emergency and who to talk to and who has the ability to do which types of response 
became very important. The other side of that too was a, a strong commitment between the sheriff's office and between the school district to develop a joint reserve officer program so that reserve officers were deployed in the schools and had not just an understanding of the school context, but also an understanding of the law enforcement context as well. And we just saw that happen repeatedly, even when we got to the, uh, towards the end, the recovery phase, when we're starting to worry less about getting students to the correct parents, but starting to worry more about how do we support students from a mental health perspective, being able to bridge between the school, which is kind of the epicenter, and all of these support services that are available within the community and available at the state level, it all comes back to those relationships. Having a operating picture becomes really important to help those, those kinds of high impact, low frequency events roll as smoothly as, as is possible in those kinds of circumstances. I think the report really stressed that the importance of a reunification plan and having trauma care on campus. There were uh, a couple of specific things I wanted to ask you about. You issued 29 recommendations and recommendation 12 noted there were a few areas of the middle school campus where the PA could not be heard, specifically those portable classrooms. Uh, and it's my understanding some of those classrooms did not immediately know about the notification of the lockdown. How did this impact the May 6th shooting and what were what are some of the steps maybe being taken to improve that process? Mm -hmm. that, that's a great question. And, and I think it speaks to the underlying issue being how we tend to use facilities in the state. Um, we've seen this this kind of circumstance happen in many school districts where we're using a building in one sense one year and then enrollment changes and we need to move it into a different function. Um, and just making sure that that functional aspect of emergency operations is a consideration as we're thinking about how we use buildings most efficiently in the state. So I think it, it's an important aspect in this circumstance um, if, if I would say that an area where we tend to see problems in emergency response is communication would probably be a, a gross understatement, generally speaking. It seems as though regardless of the, the kind or location of emergency, there are usually folks who have information that have difficulty getting it to people who need it. And so broadly speaking, that's why this became one of the recommendations that made it into the report, because it's, it's broadly replicable. It's the kind of thing that I think any principal would be able to look at the plans that they have and say, boy, I remember that the preschool that used to be associated with the school next door is now my shop class or whatever that may be and, and help folks process through those kinds of concerns as well. When it came to this particular incident, um, it, that was the outgrowth of it is that the individuals who were in those portables were aware, became aware of the situation as it was developing rather than having a, a pre-notification for that. And in this particular case, it was taken care of, um, it's, it's being rectified over the course of the summer. And, and I assume that that's been completed. But as we went out and did our interviews, that was one of those recommendations that we thought was really important to be able to push forward because we don't want to have to wait until after an incident to be able to do a communications review and make sure that everyone we want to be talking to in an emergency has the ability to hear it. 
the report also stressed the importance of a reunification plan for an event like this. What lessons were there from this? Um, and I guess for listeners, when I say reunification, I mean uh, parents and children. Of course, it was a very traumatic day. But what, what lessons can we learn from this and how can we improve uh, reunification in this uh, scenario or, I mean, God forbid it happen again? Yeah, well, the, the reunification plan, the, the framework that we always try to think about when we talk about reunifications plans is taking the right student, getting them back to the right parent or guardian, and then documenting that it's happened. What we found out, and we've seen this to be the case as we've looked at other case studies as well, is a reunification process can become very, very quickly overwhelming to the folks who are trying to pull it off. Uh, there's just not enough staff in a normal classroom day to be able to do an emergency relocation, especially an offsite relocation where students are evacuated to an unusual part of the campus. And especially when there's as much concern and care from parents as there is following a type of, of high profile traumatic incident. So all of those factors make it much, much more complex than it would be at the normal end of the day. Reunification events aren't honestly all that unusual because if we have a sewer line break at a school, we're gonna have to send the kids home. And that's usually within the capacity of the school because it's not an emergent situation. There's not that sense of urgency and there's not a sense of uh, borderline panic in, in and amongst the community. And so what we realized very, very quickly is that in order to have the capacity to do an emergency reunification, we have to have a lot of good planning in advance because it's not something that you can make up on the fly. If that's your expectation, you're gonna have a really bad day and you're gonna cause a lot of unnecessary panic and concern with students and with parents. That's the goal is to be able to get parents and students matched up um, appropriately. So that's, that's what I would say would be the biggest element that we saw is that thresholding question of understanding that you are going to be very quickly overwhelmed with the absolutely natural human reaction of a parent to come to where their student is if they believe them to be in danger and to try to get them. And so making provision for how that happens has to take place around a conference table when we're all safe, not in the midst of an evacuation from one site to another. So I would say those are the two big takeaways that we see in terms of reunification. There were lots of smaller lessons learned in terms of kind of practical, tactical tips. Um, but from the beginning, when that student's sitting in their classroom, we know who they are, where they are, and where they ought to be. And we have to continue that chain of custody of that student all the way to the point we're able to put them and reunite them with their parent. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of people. And so one of the things that we're gonna be looking at within our office is how can we develop some better templating plans and some better concepts of operations to help schools walk through that. That's gonna be a plan that's very, very, uh, it, it's gonna to have to have high degrees of customization because the way we do a reunification plan for a 950 student middle school is gonna be much different than one that has 150 elementary school students. There's just a lot of constraints there, but by and large having a common operating picture, helping 
our policymakers and helping our administrators think through the issues that they're going to have before they land on their plate is really where we see the most efficient use of resources. Uh, you talked a little bit about some of the panic that there was that day. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a parent or a teacher or a student there that day. The report did uh, discuss a little bit the importance of having trauma support on campus after an event like this. What lessons did we learn from that and what role does that play having trauma support on campus? I, I think that's another huge takeaway that we really want to make sure we capture and understand the importance. It's very easy to think, you know, once I get that last student matched up with that last parent, everything's going to be okay. And what we continued to hear as we did our interviews throughout the summer is not everybody was okay. Not everybody was okay following the incident. Some folks um, were able to uh, deal with it and depending on their uh, proximity to the events and their own individual histories, people reacted to the events of that day very, very differently. Some of them were able to develop their own management and coping skills and move right back in uh, fairly seamlessly. But there will be people who carry this burden mostly for the rest of, <clears throat> excuse me, for the rest of their life. So I would expect that as we're talking about these conversations of traumatic incident, mental health crisis supports, there's a phasing that we began to see taking place. There was kind of the immediate response phase taking place in the first week to two weeks where the focus was on how do we begin to normalize people's reactions to the situation? How do we begin to move back into the realm where education can occur? How do we begin to identify individuals that are having a difficult time and get them the supportive services they need? And that really became a dividing line between those those supports that the school could provide. And certainly, I have to say, it was not just Jefferson Middle School that was tasked with providing those supports. This was a cooperative effort from many, many uh, mental health care providers from neighboring school districts who were able to surge and help assist the need of getting kids back in school, getting them to a place where they feel safe so that learning can can begin again. I would say that that's kind of the beginning phase. But then really we needed to find a bridge so that those individuals who needed additional longer term care and support would be able to uh, even just understand the system by which that comes. And so a lot of state level resources, uh, specifically children's mental health was able to step into that gap and be able to provide an onboarding process for individuals who were involved in the incident who needed additional support. And, And there were a lot of things that were viewed as being very, very helpful. One key takeaway that we heard over and over again as we talked to staff is having a a critical stress debriefing prior to returning to school uh, was very helpful on a personal level for many people, helping them understand that the feelings that they were having and some of the the post-traumatic stress responses, those normal physiological responses to extreme stress were normal and were to be expected and giving them some strategies for how to help manage that within themselves and also help recognize that in students in their classroom. That proved to be something that we want to incorporate into our templating plans just because almost without exception, that was one of the areas where 
there was a lot of value had for a, a relatively small investment of time and effort. Looking back, it, it seems like it would be an impossible situation for the teachers who feel responsible for the children, but also the students who have to go back and learn math in the same classroom. You know, it, it would be an impossible situation to be in. So. And I would say it's probably, it's not impossible, but it was very, very challenging. Um, part of that was helping folks think through if it is completely normal, if you hear a loud noise and your reaction is off the charts to that, and you look at the reaction you had to that loud noise and you think, why am I doing this? Am I going crazy? Helping to step into that conversation and say, no, that's a completely normal response to the to the types of things that you've walked through. What proved to be very, I think, helpful to staff and also to students, because at the end of the day, those classroom teachers have a better view on what's normal in terms of behavior for their students than really anyone else, um, aside from parents. But giving them the kinds of tools they need to be able to identify, maybe the student isn't acting out, maybe they need to sit down and talk with someone for a few minutes, and those kinds of, of awarenesses aren't the kinds of conversations that we have normally in education in many, in many realms, but certainly helping students process through those traumatic incidents and those physiological responses and helping them get back into a place where they can think clearly about differential equations or about who actually, you know, what year was the War of 1812? All those kinds of things are why they're here. I wanted to refer to another recommendation in the report. There were some indicators that the suspected shooter, this young girl, was troubled, but it wasn't reported in it wasn't reported until after the shooting had occurred. Can you walk me through what is the importance of having avenues for students, especially new students and um, staff, having avenues for them to report these kind of, I suppose, um, behaviors that were concerning. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you phrased that because that's very much how we view that question is having avenues of communication. We know that in many cases, students will feel very free with sharing information, sharing concerns, sharing worries with school staff. And, and that is to be expected when you have a caring relationship with your students. And, and I believe that to be the case, but there are those circumstances where a student sees something or hears something, or notices a change in behavior or maybe a change in affect, and they don't quite know what to do with it. it in many cases, and this isn't specific to the, this particular situation, but what we've seen from averted violence studies has been, in many cases, students after the fact came to trusted staff and said, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I thought, and I didn't think it was a big deal, or I thought that they were just saying things, or that there's innumerable reasons why we convince ourselves that the behavior we're observing in someone is normal, and students aren't immune from that. And so being able to provide students with the thinking structure to be able to understand this behavior that I'm observing in my friend whom I care about isn't normal, and that's not a burden I should have to carry on my own. Is there somebody who can help me with this information? And, and the indication, I think, for anybody who's outside the field is to say, well, you're just trying to come up with a way to get students to rat on each other. And that's certainly not the intent of any of these systems. 
what we know from a research perspective is that most of the time students know what's going on with their friends. And I hate to say this, even in the best of families, there are barriers between students communicating with adults. So what we've found is that students understand the levels of anonymity that are sometimes associated with internet communications, sometimes to their detriment. But really what we want to be able to do is to say, take that same concern that you have for your friend and take that concern that you have, whether it's for your reputation or for your standing or you're afraid that they'll get into trouble, take those two concerns, use the tool that you use for most of your communications anyway, and let us get the information from the people who have it, the students, to the people who have the ability to change the situation, which is in some cases school staff, in some cases it's law enforcement or getting that individual the support they need. Uh, it's just one of the things that we find, unfortunately, is that students know what's going on within a school a lot more or to a different degree than the adults who have the ability to help in those situations. So that's why I say the, the wording that you chose was very accurate to say this is an avenue of communication and helping students know what to communicate and know how to communicate it becomes very, very important. Sure. I think 13 year olds, especially maybe uh, are still learning the, the resources on how to address uh, major issues like that. Some of the issues that this young woman uh, was facing last week, unfortunately, there was a different 13 year old girl um, taken into sheriff's custody for having a firearm at the middle school. Is that something um, that your program will look into? So we haven't reviewed any facts specific to that incident yet. The, the release of this report um, was uh, scheduled out in advance. And, and so we haven't looked at the specifics of that report. It would probably be inappropriate for me to comment on that, um, just because it's much more helpful to have somebody who's informed of the circumstances speak to it rather than someone off the top of his head. But that's it's a great question. And I think it's when we think about the process of reviewing lessons learned, this isn't something that needs to be a third party state agency who drives across the state from Boise to help people walk through that. I think this, the process that we talk about is to say, what did we know? What did we know went well as far as our planning goes? What did we not know? And what did not, what did not go well as far as the unplanned or the unknowns go? And then the end result being, how do we make this better in the future? I think that's the responsibility really of every policymaker and everybody who agrees to accept students into their care in lieu of the parents. Earlier, you mentioned uh, this is a report that all schools can look at, all families can look at, because there are uh, similar issues at all public schools across the state. You mentioned it was low, low frequency, but high impact when something like this happens in the state. Is there anything I, I haven't asked that you think parents should know when they send their kids to school? I think uh, two things, really. I think that that issue of communication is so important. As we talk about having everyone on the same page when it comes to protecting the safety of individual students and also protecting the safety of the school community in and of itself, everyone has a part to play in that. Uh, and I think that that communication component becomes very, very important, whether it's communication out from the school and it's perfectly appropriate for student, for, excuse me, for parents to ask the question of, 
what are your expectations of me in the event of an emergency? If I hear that some kind of emergency has happened at my school, do you want me to drive straight there and park in the front parking lot? Well, probably not. And But those are good questions to be able to incorporate into a dialogue. Um, many school districts have a safety and security committee or safety and security team, something along those lines, where local emergency response agencies, school folks have the ability to come together and make common operating procedures and plans. And that's something that parents absolutely can ask about and, and certainly inquire about. One of the things I would say is that I'm always nervous if we get into a situation where we're releasing emergency operations plans in any kind of a public forum, because though the release or the disclosure of some of the details of those plans can in some ways harm or could be used against a school. So there is a balancing act that goes on in terms of what do we talk about and what do we talk about with the appropriate parties. But that's always a, a reasonable line of questioning is to be able to say school administrator or teacher or whoever your point of contact is with the school, what are your expectations of me as a parent? One of the things that I always try to reinforce with parents is please, 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 Make sure you have current contact information on file at the school, because if they're tasked with making 950 phone calls to try to get parents, and your number is the one that your phone uh, number changed, you're going to be moved to the end of the list in that. And many of the school districts that we work with have developed automated systems that incorporate that kind of level of functionality into their student information system, but also Every once in a while, a kid will fall on the playground and need to become and picked up. Or in this day and age, sometimes they get sick. So being able to have even that baseline kind of information of current contact information held at the school, because at some point they'll need to get a hold of you. And being able to just keep good data hygiene when it comes to those kinds of questions is a, is a great way to at least start the conversation. Mike Munger, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Ruth. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Idaho Reports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode next Wednesday. Until then, you can follow our reporting on social media, the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, the Idaho Reports blog, and our weekly roundup newsletter every Friday. You can find links to all of those at our website at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.